You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Sophie Cook finds out how to spot abuse in vulnerable people. This is bread and butter of uh, clinical practice. You have, doctors have clinical skills to be able to approach. This type of clinical presentation is no different to any other. But first, cyclists are the most vulnerable group of road users, being involved in more accidents than motorists and pedestrians, and being hurt more badly when they are. In a drive to improve safety, many cyclists now wear helmets. But how useful is legislation which mandates their use? Harriet Vickers finds out. We know that cyclists are vulnerable, particularly from injuries to the head. So is mandatory helmet use a good thing? Do we need legislation to help prevent hospitalisations from head injuries? Jessica Dennis has looked at this question in Canada. She is a PhD candidate from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and she joins me on the line now. Morning Jessica, thanks very much for, for joining us. Well thanks for inviting me. So, so first of all, could you give us an overview of kind of the state of knowledge at the moment? Has anyone been able to unpick it so far? Well there have been a lot of attempts but most of those studies haven't really gone far enough in their methodologies so they've used what we call just a before and after study design where they looked at the rate of head injuries before helmet laws were passed and then the rate of head injuries after helmet laws were passed. And a lot of those studies also didn't include a concurrent comparison group. So they just looked at a group of cyclists who were targeted by the helmet laws and they didn't look at a group of cyclists who weren't targeted by the helmet laws. So they couldn't really say whether helmet laws were having an effect on any changes in the rate of head injuries that they were observing. Great, okay, so Canada's actually sort of a quite nice natural experiment in that way, because um, you've got this, some states which haven't um, implemented legislation which act as a, a control group. Exactly, yeah, so um, in Canada we have 10 provinces and three territories, and six of those provinces have implemented helmet laws. So in two of those provinces, the helmet laws only apply to cyclists less, less than 18 years of age. Okay. And in the other four provinces, all cyclists are targeted by the helmet laws. And um, this legislation, is it part of a, a package of strategies? Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the things that makes this question so hard to study, is that the helmet laws aren't passed in isolation. So... In Manitoba, for example, they've had an extensive media campaign that's also promoting the use of helmets. And around the time that helmet laws are passed, we see changes to the cycling infrastructure. Over the time period that we did our study, there were new bike lanes that were introduced in a lot of Canadian cities. There was safe passing laws, a law that dictates how close a motorist can be when they're passing the cyclist. Mm. And there have been... Yes, this increasing awareness of the need to be safe when you're cycling and a push for cyclists to have bells and lights and wear visible clothing and all of this stuff could make it very difficult to detect an effect of helmet laws. And, and were you able to, to take this into account in, in any way in, in your paper? Mm -hmm. Well, we tried to document it whenever we could find information. So we tried to document... Uh, for example, if there was a media campaign or educational strategies in place when provinces passed helmet laws. But it was really hard to get at, and often uh, there was there's something 
locally going on as opposed to something province-wide. So it was really hard to disentangle the effects of helmet laws and all the other complex societal stuff that was going on. And this is this is one of the key conclusions of our paper, is that it's the question of whether helmet laws reduce head injuries is a really complex question because it, it's happening in real time in our societies with so much other complex stuff going on. But you were able to, to track the baseline changes, weren't you? That's right, yeah. So the sophisticated analysis that we did, what's called a segmented regression analysis, actually takes into account baseline trends. And so we looked at what was happening in each of the provinces before helmet laws were passed. And then we looked to see if that trend was significantly altered by the introduction of helmet laws. And we found that it wasn't. We, we didn't see an appreciable decline in the rate of head injuries in provinces that passed helmet laws, which led us to conclude that we couldn't really isolate an independent effect of helmet legislation above and beyond this declining trend that was already happening throughout Canada. So I mean, would your headline message from, from the study be that you need to, to do all these things to, to try and protect cyclists? Definitely. I think that a key message is, is that a helmet law in and of itself isn't enough. They're one strategy. And we know that other strategies work. Things like dedicated bicycle lanes and bicycle routes that get cyclists away from traffic and away from pedestrians, that's one of the safest ways that cyclists can get from point A to point B. And we also know that cyclists like these these safe modes of transport. When you make cycling safer and you, you make the city cycling friendly, we have more cyclists using their bikes. So it's really a win-win for everybody. Great. Thank you very much for, for coming on and telling us about that. Someone who's frankly too scared to, to cycle in London, it's, um, it's really <laughs> nice to see your, your rates declining. Great, well thank you Harriet. And that research article is now available on bmj.com. Now, it's routinely assumed that abuse of vulnerable people, be that physical, mental, sexual or financial, is underreported. Doctors play a key role in spotting when someone is threatened, but can be difficult to know when to tackle the issue. A clinical review this week sets out some advice, and Sophie Cook caught up with the authors to find out more. I'm joined in the studio by Dr Billy Boland, Safeguarding Lead for Adults, and Jemima Burnage, Head of Social Work and Safeguarding at Hertfordshire Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. Billy and Jemima are two authors of this week's clinical review on safeguarding adults at risk of harm. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what safeguarding means? Yeah, um, safeguarding is really about protecting patients, protecting people we might consider at risk of experiencing harm. So um, these are the kind of patients that doctors come across a lot in their day-to-day practice, some of the most frequently consulting patients for GPs. Uh, We give some examples in the paper of the type of people we might be talking about. So an elderly person who's frail, physically unwell and disabled, or maybe somebody that has cognitive impairment. Um, a person with a severe mental illness, um, perhaps someone who's in a nursing home or receiving some kind of residential care. Um, people with learning disabilities can be at risk of harm because of the types of services that they might be receiving and issues of mental capacity that they might experience. Um, and other people that lack capacity uh, can also be affected. So quite a different range of people, actually. Mm-hmm. 
In your review, you talk about the fact that abuse doesn't just constitute physical acts of abuse, but there are other types. Can you, maybe Jemima, do you want to tell us a bit about what sort of abuse we should be on the lookout for when we're safeguarding? Yeah, I think we need to look at all types of abuse because we particularly, physical is an easier one to spot. Um, It's more overt and people speak about that uh, more freely quite often. We can see the symptoms of that. Really thinking about abuse, it can be from all degrees, from very mild to moderate to, to really severe forms of abuse that can be around neglect it can be acts and omissions by staff themselves within services which is what we've seen with some of the big cases uh, nationally um, it can be financial abuse quite often we have had cases within you know within families and, and within services themselves around financial abuse um, so we've got neglect financial abuse physical abuse um, sexual abuse which is obviously much more obvious to people and clinicians thinking about abuse but we need to think about the more subtle forms of discriminatory abuse particularly around our LGB community and our learning disabled clients particularly around looking at hate crime being one of the aspects so there is a vast range of different degrees that happens to different people at any times in their life but in terms of um, safeguarding we need to be able to report those concerns but in terms of our procedures nationally and locally within the counties that we work in we need to be thinking about those those people that may not be able to protect themselves and where we can step in to support them so so you've highlighted some of the groups of people who might be at particular risk and obviously there's quite a wide range of categories of abuse. How might a doctor be alerted to some of these forms of abuse and what sort of things should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, um, I think one of the reassurances, I suppose, is that protecting patients is the bread and butter of what doctors do, right? We're very used to thinking about things from a patient's point of view. So really just having the possibility of, of, of abuse at the back of your mind is really necessary to make sure that you spot it when it comes up. So the kind of things that that might present a, a physical abuse, that would be the obvious thing. So if people are having unexplained injuries, you can, you should ask them about that, what, you know, where that came from and, and how. Um, but other more subtle presentations are things like people talking about a change in their personal circumstances at home. So if they're bringing something that seems to be slightly out of context to do with relationships, perhaps, it can be really important to just pull at that thread because behind it might be a worry or a tentative suggestion of of things having changed in their home that's actually causing them harm. You also mentioned about changes in behaviour as well in patients. Can you give any examples of what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, uh, for patients that are less able to express themselves verbally, they might present with different changes in behaviour. So doctors are probably familiar with experiencing behavioural change in people with learning disabilities. So challenging behaviour or other types of behaviour change becoming more aggressive, becoming more withdrawn maybe, can be indirect indicators of uh, experience of abuse. But behaviour change can be really important in other groups like frail elderly, people with dementias. Um, so you, it's it's good clinical skills really, mm-hmm. you inquiring after any change in a patient and thinking about the meaning of it. 
can I strip it? I think we need to also, you know, we need to think about, and doctors need to think about um, when they're seeing patients, that it, those are sometimes more the odd free, obvious groups that we look for, someone who has a cognitive impairment mm. and someone who has a learning disability, but particularly with people with mental ill health who present with capacity but also can be subject to abuse yeah. and exploitation. So we need to think much wider than that and look for the subtle signs. Mm. And I think it's really important not just to listen to what patients are saying but actually to hear and then work with them on mm. that. So Yeah. Whilst we're just talking about capacity, I know that's a particularly difficult issue um, and there are several things in your review that you talk about like confidentiality and how to handle patients who lack capacity. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, com confidentiality is a tricky area. Um, you know, it's drummed into us at medical school, isn't it, isn't it, about how important it is and how we must do our utmost to protect confidentiality and of course that's absolutely right but one of the difficulties when you're facing dealing with abuse is that um, people express uh, um, the experience of abuse in different ways and have different attitudes towards sharing information about it so um, abuse may be confined to, to one particular context one particular relationship um, within a family but often abuse can be experienced by um, many different people from the same perpetrator so if that's the case then um, the, raising an allegation of abuse in that type of context becomes much more complicated because you're not just talking about that person's experience but also there could be other people out there that are also experiencing abuse um, and then there's more than one consideration to be to be had there I mean the GMC is fairly clear when it comes to confidentiality, that disclosure could become necessary where uh, it's in the public interest, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. If we think about what a GP might do if they suspect abuse, obviously this is your area of expertise and perhaps some GPs might be more aware of child protection issues but less aware of how to, how to take adult protection issues forward. What um, would you recommend that somebody does if they're, if they're faced with a situation where they think someone might be at risk of abuse? How should they broach the subject? I mean, in terms of GPs in practice, obviously they're linked to the clinical commissioning groups where we have the safeguarding leads um, quite often for adults and children within those groups because the commissioning board has been very clear about uh, the role of safeguarding within services at all levels through the NHS. Um, where we have got that is there is local advice through, you know, you can pick up a phone, you can seek advice, you can seek support. The internet is a great place to be able to look at information, look at sources of support in your local area to make where to make referrals to. So a GP in any area should be able to contact their local services for support. Um, but I think the key is, if you're unsure about something and there's something you're thinking someone's been abused, is to seek the advice and support around that rather than keep that to yourself. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think... I mean, like I said earlier, this is bread and butter of uh, clinical practice. Being curious about patients is the bread and butter of clinical practice. So I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that um, we, you have, doctors have clinical skills to be able to approach this. This type of clinical presentation is no different to any other. And you should be asking questions, essentially. You've got to be curious and, and follow your nose. I think in the past... Maybe doctors have been less comfortable asking these types of questions, but there's a clear responsibility on us um, these days to be able to identify these problems and take them forward when that's appropriate. So we, we just need to, to ask questions. And do you have any tips about 
how to how to broach the topic because it can be quite sensitive. I mean, how how would you suggest that people go about it? I, mean, I think a top tip is to use your observational skills as a mm-hmm. clinician because it's not just about the patient that comes into your practice. It's about you know the residential unit that you go to. Um, you know the, the services that you provide to other parts of the community so I think observation skills is a top tip to use your eyes and use your, and use your ears to hear what's going on because quite often there are small subtle signs that then help you to engage in the conversation to start that um, yeah. so I think it's not being frightened to broach that subject but it can be very sensitive Billy do you want to yeah absolutely don't be frightened to inquire about it um, but we need to be sensitive about it too the if you're seeing the patient on their own, then that might be the best thing because they uh, won't want to disclose it in front of other people. But maybe the person isn't used to speaking on their own. Maybe they're used to having an advocate with them. Um, so if they want a trusted person to be there, then mm. do what you can to make sure um, a trusted person is with them. Um, but the choice of the person is really important, obviously, because yeah. the, uh, a person close to the um, individual suffering abuse could be the abuser. So yeah, there's all sorts of potential uh, conflicts that could make the make the interview go one way or another but preparation is probably the key I think yeah and I think you need to give the person time so be able to ask questions and waiting for a response to give that person time to think about what that means to them mm. so I think time's a key yeah and, and you, you know you mentioned about as you say getting someone in if they're trusted you know to, to support them and making sure the abuser's not present I think these are all really very, very good tips for, for doctors that may not cross their mind initially um, I think that's that's great we've, we've learned a lot about the review I just wonder I know this is slightly going back a step but mm. how common are safeguarding issues really in adults I mean you know to the general GP you, you obviously see lots because of the work that you're yeah. in but how common can you give us a feel perhaps in the UK for, for how often these issues crop up yeah, well, this is a really good question because I think the the answer is that nobody really knows yet. But I mean, the issue with de- defining safeguarding is that there isn't a clear threshold for what uh, requires a safeguarding investigation these days. And the definitions of abuse um, can be interpreted in different ways. Um, uh, probably the best uh, indicator that we have at the moment is the reporting of um, safeguarding referrals to the Health and Social Care Information Centre. So we know in 2010 to 2011 there were 95,000 referrals made for adult safeguarding and this they came from a variety of um, sources they came from primary care secondary care social work and were for a, a, a variety of different types of presentations so um, the largest group that were reported were for people with physical dif- uh, disabilities that was 49 percent and they were closely followed by people with mental health difficulties, 23%. But the suspicion is that, uh, like I said, that the overall number of referrals are underreported, and we would expect to see that number increase over the years as people become more aware of safeguarding issues. Is there anything else that you think our readers would benefit from knowing or any tips that you can give before we wrap up? I mean, I think the main thing, the key, the key kind of message to take away is, it sounds a cliche, but it is everybody's business. It is important for all clinicians to think about this. I think GPs have a unique relationship with patients to be able to recognise and prevent abuse at a very early stage to support people to have better outcomes. So I think they have a key role. So if you have concerns, ask questions early. Cons- yeah. yeah. And that article is available online and in print this week. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back looking at imported malaria. Join us then.
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.